0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Every walk of life has its stars, the famous people who get all the attention. In business, it's the CEOs. In sports, it's the big-name athletes. In movies, it's the actors, and to some extent, the directors. And in music, it's the musicians and the singers. But to be honest, these people are just the faces of their respective industries and pursuits, Some have real power and influence, others are just figureheads and puppets. Whatever the case, behind them, behind the famous people, are ARMIES of people who made it possible for these folks to do what they do. And here's the sad part. While the star CEO or the big time singer gets all the glory and all the money, chances are there's a little guy, deep in the background, who's not getting any credit. Even though without him or her, these other people, these famous people, wouldn't be so rich and so famous. Let me give you an example. Chances are that you're listening to me right now on an FM radio. FM radio was invented by a dude named Edward Howard Armstrong back in 1933. But then the mighty RCA Corporation launched an unfounded legal challenge against Armstrong over his patents. In the end, Armstrong lost control of his invention and was left so penniless and upset that he jumped out of his 13th floor window. Bottom line though is, had it not been for Edwin Howard Armstrong, you wouldn't be hearing me as you are now. This is the kind of stuff I want to explore in this program. The people deep, deep, deep behind the music. People without whom rock would be, well, very, very different because they invented something really, really cool that made it all happen. Just that they never got the credit. Until now. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Herman Hollerith was born in Buffalo back in 1860. Back then, it took 10 years to complete the U.S. Census. But Hollerith figured out a way to tabulate all the data using cards with holes punched in them. And thanks to him, the 1890 Census was finished in just three months. Three months instead of ten years. This guy's theories and inventions led to the formation of the Tabulating Machine Company. It later became known as the Computing Tabulating Recording Company, and by 1924 was known as International Business Machines, or IBM for short. Hollerith then could be considered the father of modern computing. Without him, no Intel, no Microsoft, no Bill Gates, no Steve Jobs, no iPod. So props to Herman Hollerith. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to spend the next hour giving props to people scientists, inventors, engineers, code monkeys, or just tinkerers that you've probably never heard of before. Without them, our music would be very, very different, and there's some really, really cool stuff buried here. Let's start with this name, J.P. Maxfield. J.P. Maxfield. Who? Well, this dude is so obscure that he doesn't even have a wikipedia entry jp was an engineer at a company called western electric who was working on a process called electrical recording up until the middle 1920s recording sound was a very mechanical process it involved nothing more than a singer and a band sitting up around a big horn shaped sound collector the horn then funneled sound to a needle that vibrated and as the needle vibrated it cut a groove into a rotating disc made of very soft material that disc became the master and records were pressed from it it worked but this sounded awful there was no way of editing the performance there were no overdubs you couldn't add any special effects and if the band or the singer screwed up you had to start from scratch jp and his people found a way to make recording an electrical process and it was a big success for western electric especially in the early 1930s when it came to putting sound to movies in fact if you watch the credits of old black and white films and tv shows you'll see the Western Electric logo. In fact, if you watch the credits of old black and white films and TV shows, you will see Western Electric get a mention. You'll see their logo. This film connection is very important. Movies were, and still are, divided into reels. Back then the reels were 10 or 11 minutes long. At first the soundtrack was separated from the visuals. A projector showed the film and the soundtrack came from a record player. This meant that the length of each had to be the same. JP did some calculations in 1927 and he worked out that sustaining maximum sound fidelity and volume and minimum noise, over 10 or 11 minutes, required the grooves on the record to be packed in at about 100 to the inch on a 12 inch disc rotating at 33 and a third revolutions per minute. Although the density of grooves increased over the next 20 years, the diameter of the disc and the spin speed stayed the same. This is why vinyl albums are foot wide. And spin at 33 and a third RPM to this day. So, thanks to J.P. Maxfield for figuring it all out. And we leave you to and Arlo, James Taylor, Jimmy Rogers, Hank Williams, and Mojo Nixon, Hendrix, Haggard, and a whole lot more. In that dusty old pile of vinyl records I got sitting on my floor. That's a guy named Todd Snyder singing about his collection of vinyl records, most of which no doubt play at the odd speed of 33 and a third revolutions per minute. That's thanks to the work of J.P. Maxfield back in 1927. All right. Up next, Grady Martin. Grady Martin. He is the indirect inventor of the power cord. Let's back up. One of the great inventions of the 1950s was the electric guitar. There were many people who contributed to its birth, but the most famous was Les Paul. But the goal of the original electric guitar was volume. Clean, clear, amplified guitar sounds. Like this. That's Les Paul back in the 1950s doing his jazz thing on one of his electric guitar creations. But when most of us think about electric guitar today, we think of something like this. This is where Grady Martin comes in. He is the guy, as far as we can tell, got the idea of dirtying up the sound of an electric guitar. It was 1960. Grady was working as a session musician in Nashville, and he was booked in to work with country star Marty Robbins on a song called Don't Worry About Me. But during his session, something went wrong, and his amplifier and his guitar sounded all fuzzy and distorted. But it sounded fuzzy and distorted in a cool way. Grady and some people got together and figured out how to reproduce this fuzzy sound on command using an electronic circuit activated by a button on a foot pedal. They called this a fuzz box. Now to the best of anyone's knowledge, the first commercially available fuzz box was something called the Maestro Fuzz Tone FZ-1. Others soon followed. They had brand names like Big Muff, Fuzz Face, and Tone Bender. Once people like Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, and Keith Richards got a hold of these things, the very nature of the electric guitar changed. It became more powerful and more menacing, it growled, it sustained. Rock became glorious and primal and fierce. And this is an important thing, at the same time our musical sensibilities changed. Ten years earlier, we might have dismissed this new sound as painful noise, but thanks to the fuzz pedal, our taste began to evolve in a completely unexpected direction fuzz, distortion. It sounded good. And that's where we are today. And to think that the guy who made it all possible was a country musician named Grady Martin. Story glory from Radiohead with Body Snatchers from the In Rainbows album. Experiments in guitar distortion exploded in the early 1960s. People quickly found that you could use a distortion pedal like the fuzz tone to get the sound that you wanted, or you could mess with your amplifier. One of the first people to take this route was Dave Davies of the Kinks. When the band was recording this song in 1964, he slashed the speaker cone of his small amp some say he used a razor blade, some people say it was a screwdriver, whatever the case. He intentionally damaged the speaker in his amp so it would distort whatever came out of it. The result was this. Ripping the speaker of your amp gave you distortion, but not a lot of control over the kind or the intensity of the distortion. There had to be a better way. A drum teacher named Jim ran a music store in London. In the early 1960s, customers kept coming into the store looking for guitar amplifiers that could be heard over larger and noisier rock and roll audiences. He really didn't have anything in stock, nobody was really building anything, so he started building custom amps. Not only were his amplifiers loud, but they had a thicker sound that could sustain a chord for a long, long time. It was really, really cool. The amplifiers were modular too. The guts of the amp and all the controls were housed in one box, and all the speakers were in another cabinet. You could stack a bunch of them together on stage, and they looked cool. Over the decades, Jim's amplifiers became synonymous with loud, powerful rock, and today they're used by Slash, Oasis, the Deftones, Rob Zombie, Paul Weller, Sum 41, Papa Roach, and hundreds of others, famous and not so famous. Oh, you probably want to know Jim's last name. It was Marshall. Jim Marshall. (music) Yeah, that's right. A drummer invented the most influential guitar amplifier of all time, the Marshall Stack. Jane's Addiction, featuring guitarist Dave Navarro, a user of the famous Marshall Amplifier. And we have to give props to the amp's inventor, Jim Marshall, another one of the people who you may have never heard of, but owe a lot to. This program is all about unsung heroes, people in the background of rock and roll who have done so much to make music what it is today, but who might not get the recognition they deserve because they were engineers and tinkerers and inventors instead of musicians. People like Hula Kane. The, oh. Hugh Hugh LeCain. Hugh was originally from Thunder Bay, back in the days when they called the place Port Arthur. Hugh became a scientist, and then he worked on radar systems during World War II for the Canadian government. When he wasn't working on the war effort or atomic physics, he developed a passion for music that was generated electronically. In 1945, he started working on a device he called the Electronic Sackbutt. I have no idea why he called it that. The Electronic Sackbutt. Stupid name, but when it was unveiled in 1948, it was really revolutionary. It was a keyboard, kind of looked like a small piano. The keys were force-sensitive and were played with one hand. The other hand was left free to fiddle with some dials and controls that affected the sound. And the sound, the notes, were produced by controlling the voltage flowing through circuits. Waveforms could be controlled. Let me play you something from Hugh. This is a track from 1955, it's called Drip City. He took the sound of a single drip of water and ran it through his electronic saxophone. Hugh LeCane from 1955 with an early example of keyboard-generated electronic music. Bottom line to all this is that Hugh's invention, the electronic sackbut, is considered by many to be the first proper keyboard synthesizer. Sure inventors like Bob Moe got all the glory later, but that was the 60s. Hugh did his work in the 1940s. So let's give this man, this Canadian, some credit for laying the basic groundwork of the modern electronic keyboard. And without him, who knows if we would have ever had somebody like uh, Trent Reznor, and Nine Inch Nails. Like an My is fine. You me you can. A little Nine Inch Nails, in tribute to Hugh LeCain, the inventor of the earliest form of keyboard synthesizer. Now we're going to talk about Andreas Pavel. No, you've never heard of this guy. But if you own any kind of portable music device, you need to thank Andreas. The story is that he went for a walk in Brazil in 1972, and he thought to himself, you know, it would be really cool if I could listen to music while I went for my walks. That's when he went home and invented something he called the Stereo Belt. It was a small cassette player that pumped music through headphones. Sounds elementary now, but in 1972, this was revolutionary. Andreas thought he was onto to something, so he took his invention to a number of people. Yamaha, Philips, Grundig, all big manufacturers of consumer electronics, but every single one of these people said, come on, no one's ever going to buy a machine that people would carry around and listen to using headphones. By 1978, Andreas was pretty discouraged, but he decided he'd better protect his interests by filing a patent, which he did in Italy. A year later, it got weird. It was 1979. Sony started selling something called the Walkman. It was a portable cassette player that you strapped to your belt and listened to using headphones. Andreas was, um, understandably pissed. He began to negotiate with Sony over what he considered to be violations of his patent. He got something out of Sony in 1986, but it only involved the sale of Walkmans in Germany. A similar set of talks in the UK was thrown out, leaving Andreas on the hook for $3 million in court costs. But all this has a happy ending. In 2003, he and Sony settled out of court. Rumors talk about $10 million in cash, and a piece of the action for some Walkman models. But the bottom line to all this is that Andreas Pavel was the guy who first came up with the concept of the personal music player. And we could obviously do a whole show on the social, anthropological, and economic implications of such a device. So, the next time you plug in the earbuds from your iPod, give a little thanks to Andreas Pavel, the guy who first came up with the idea. I just put my headphones on. Turn it up and sing along. I don't care if you think that I'm singing out of key. Talk is cheap, don't talk to me. I can't hear what they say. An old track from 1983 from SSQ, praising the Sony Walkman, which apparently was originally the idea of a German-Brazilian dude named Andreas Pavel. So props to him. Here's one more inventor that needs to get more credit. His name is Jim Russell. Jim is probably the true inventor of the compact disc. I I know, there's all kinds of stories about how the CD was a co-invention of Philips and Sony back in the 70s. Well, Well, yeah, but before them was Jim Russell. Jim was a scientist from Washington State. He was apparently the first person to attach a color screen and a typewriter-type keyboard to a computer. Jim was also a music fan who hated the fact that his favorite vinyl records always wore out, no matter how well he cared for them. I mean, anytime you drag a diamond through a trench made of plastic, you're gonna have wear. But being a computer guy, Jim understood the language of digital, binary code, information stored as zeros and ones. What if, Jim thought, I could digitize music and then play it back using a system that didn't involve any physical contact between any of the parts. At first he thought he might be able to encode music on a 3x5 inch card that could fit into a shirt pocket, kind of like what you saw on Star Trek back in the day. But then he realized that the rotating disc was the way to go. By 1970 he had it all figured out and received the first patent for an optical recording and playback device. This for all intents and purposes, was the very first compact disc. The year was 1970. A few years later, Sony and Philips purchased the licenses to develop the technology into a consumer product. And, uh, well, we know the rest. The thing you're listening to is called a compact disc. It's a method of conveying sound. It's great outside inside it's round. The thing you're listening to is a digitally accurate reading of the numbers that uh, make up different sounds in fact it's the most technologically advanced sound reproduction cool. well now we know we're not quite done i have two more people of whom you've probably never heard yet should receive your respect details in a moment welcome back i'm alan cross and we're talking about some of the unsung inventors in music the scientists the code writers the engineers and tinkerers who have changed the way we make perceive and consume music anyone know who Karl Heinz Brandenburg is that's Karl Heinz Brandenburg no I'll bet you use his invention though after he got his degrees in engineering electrical engineering and mathematics he began working in ways to make digital files smaller specifically digital audio files like uh, oh say music there were a number of different approaches to shrinking music files Brandenburg was especially interested in how the brain perceived music. He knew that our hearing is rather selective. We only hear a portion of any song. The rest is covered up by other sound. So Brandenburg and his team at the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany took some of the existing research and created an algorithm that stripped out all this invisible sound from an audio file and the result was a file that was about one-tenth the size of the original. This made it infinitely easier and faster to transmit audio files over a phone line, which was one of the original ideas behind this research. Brandenburg and his crew worked out the math by 1991. By 1994, it had been refined and accepted as an international standard. By 1995, it was in the wild. And 1995 is the year the Internet really began to cut through to the public. Brandenburg's invention was called MPEG-1 Layer 3. MP3 for short. You're probably wondering, dude, that's amazing. I bet you this Carl this Heinz guy is a billionaire. But why haven't I heard of him mentioned alongside uh, Steve Jobs or, or Bill Gates? Well, you're right, sort of. The invention of the MP3 has generated revenues of more than $150 million since it was released. However, since Karl Heinz Brandenburg was an employee of the Fraunhofer Institute, all his inventions and all his patents became the property of his employer. That means they got all the money. Now, you may have heard this story before, but the first song to be ripped to an mp3 happened in Brandenburg's lab. It was this song. This was used to assess the accuracy of the mp3 compression. I am sitting in the morning at the day. And he feels it only halfway And before I even argue He is looking out the window At somebody The first ever song ripped to MP3 by chief inventor of the MP3 Karl Heinz Brandenburg This is the technology that revolutionized everything about the music industry But the existence of MP3s wasn't enough to change things Something else was necessary to get everybody into it This is where Sean Fanning came in Sean invented something he called Napster when he was still in college at Northeastern University in Boston. He and his roommate were frustrated at how hard it was to share and download music files over the Internet. Back then, you'd have to use IRC channels or search engines, and both worked but were very, very clunky. Sean thought he could maybe come up with something that would make it easier. So, using his uncle's laptop, Sean wrote the code for a program he called Napster after his nappy hairstyle. On June 1st, 1999, he offered up the program to some friends, saying, Hey, this is pretty cool, but okay, keep it to yourself, all right? Of course, they didn't, and within hours, Napster was in the wild for good. The era of peer to peer file sharing had begun, and there was no turning back. Now, I'll be honest, I found this somewhere on a peer to peer network. All I know is that it's called Napster Survivor, and it's by someone who calls himself Napster Dan. Enjoy. Oh. Napster Dan, with a piece called Napster Survivor. It, of course, is a tribute to the original Napster P2P file-sharing software, invented by a 19-year-old college kid named Sean Fanning. And that is our look at some of the key inventors behind rock, the mad scientists, the computer coders, and the engineers who created the tools by which music is made and consumed. you got to give these people credit, because without them, who knows how things might have turned out. Technical production is handled by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.